we looked in our last session how that the 20th century had become what some people have called a century of revival, that just as the spiral bands of an approaching hurricane grow more intense and of shorter duration the closer we come to the eye of a hurricane, it seems that revivals follow much that same pattern, that the closer we come to the second coming of the Lord, it seems that in retrospect across history, the revelations, the revivals, the outpourings of the Holy Spirit have increased both in intensity as well as in frequency and the impact that they had. An approaching hurricane that has a 20-mile-an-hour wind gust is not going to have the same impact on the same number of people as an approaching hurricane that has a 150-mile-an-hour wind gust has on the lives of people and property and the impact that it has upon a region. And we've had 20-mile-an-hour winds. We've had 30-mile-an-hour winds. We've had 40-mile-an-hour winds. But we're contending and praying and believing for a Category 5 hurricane that changes everything, that touches everything. When the winds of a Category 5 hurricane come, those winds leave nothing untouched, very little standing. They touch everything and everybody over an entire region. And we're just praying and contending and believing God to send a Category 5 hurricane of His presence, His power, and His glory to touch our nation again and to change things and cause things to need to be rebuilt in ways that look different and seem different and for the old to be taken away and the new to come as a result. And so that was the pattern in the 20th century, beginning in the Welsh Revival of 1904, which ultimately became ground zero for something that would follow in various forms all over the world. Two years later in California at Azusa Street, that revival came and touched multitudes, multitudes of people. Every Pentecostal denomination in America can trace its origins back to the Azusa Street revival. Pentecostalism around the world can trace its spiritual origins back to that great revival in California. For all of its faults, for all of its mistakes, for all of the pollution that people and human agendas brought to that revival, it still literally changed the world and set things in place for other revivals that were to come in the years following. I want us to as we move along this morning, to pick up in the 1940s, primarily at the end of World War II, where there came two great revivals, almost simultaneously in succession to one another. One was the evangelism revival at the end of World War II. And the name associated with that was Billy Graham who was considered the father of modern evangelism. Billy Graham had gone to Los Angeles, California, and God began to pour out His Spirit. And the city of Los Angeles was being powerfully, powerfully impacted through Billy Graham's ministry. As he preached a simple gospel, 
He lived a life of integrity. I watched him on television a year or so ago as they dedicated the Billy Graham Library. It was actually covered live on C-SPAN. Three former United States presidents were there that day for the dedication of the Billy Graham Library. Three presidents were there in North Carolina to celebrate the dedication of his life. He ultimately came to be known as America's pastor. And God used his life in an amazing way. I've had the honor and the privilege of being in Billy Graham meetings and watching the way God uses a simple, simple man. Now, by simple, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. His message is always simple. There was nothing simple about Billy Graham. But the message that he preached was always consistent. It was always a salvation message. That's the reason you can go today to Asheville, North Carolina and ride on the Billy Graham Freeway. And you can go to Charlotte, North Carolina and ride on the Billy Graham Boulevard. And that's the reason presidents come to his presidential library. That's the reason he was a confidant, a prayer partner with presidents and prime ministers and kings and heads of state because there was just an incredible anointing upon his life to help bring the gospel. He walked in simplicity and integrity. Now, isn't that a remarkable thing to find in ministry? Never had a scandal. Nobody ever came and accused him of anything or his ministry. He has given millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars to evangelism all over the world. God has used his life in a phenomenal way and blessed him. But Billy Graham was the father of modern evangelism. His ministry, the DNA of his ministry was to get people saved. Everything else came secondary to getting people saved. Someone once said Billy Graham only had about 15 to 20 sermons. Those 15 to 20 were all he preached. Now, I don't know that to be true, but I wouldn't be surprised. I remember seeing a film clip uh, some years ago of Billy telling a story, a sermon illustration. And they started out the story with him preaching that part of the story in 1961 and then picked up with him telling the same story in 62. and say, I mean, like over a 15-year period before you got to the end of Billy's sermon illustration. And yet, the message was very, very simple. I saw him recently. He's quite old now, and he had been invited to speak at a gathering in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he had hesitated to go. And finally, he was persuaded to speak. And he got up and he told a story of Albert Einstein. And he said that Albert Einstein had gotten on a train and was traveling somewhere. And the conductor came through the car punching the train tickets. And when he got to Einstein, Einstein was having trouble coming up with his ticket. And the conductor looked at Einstein. He said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about it. I know that you have a ticket. No, I've got to find that ticket. Well, Dr. Einstein, it's fine. It's, it's okay. You, I know you have a ticket. No, I've got to find that ticket. And Einstein was going through his jacket and his shirt and his vest and his pants, and he was looking. And the conductor said, Dr. Einstein, it's perfectly okay. I know that you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. And the conductor made his way on down through the car a little bit, looked back. Well, Einstein's down, down on the floor of the train car, crawling around, looking for his ticket. 
He went back. He said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry about the ticket. And Einstein looked up from the floor. He said, you don't understand. I've got to find that ticket. I know I don't need it for you, but I've got to find that ticket because I've got to find out where I'm going. And Billy Graham told that story. He said, well, he said, I don't have a ticket today. But he said, I know where I'm going. He said, I, I'm wearing the suit today that I'm going to wear when I'm buried. He said, next time you see this suit, I'll be wearing it in a casket. He said, my children were fussing at me recently because I was kind of getting a little bit sloppy in my dress. And a couple of my daughters took me out and we went shopping and I got a new suit. And, and he said, I'm wearing my new suit. But he said, this is the suit I'll be buried in. And he spoke with affection over the idea of going on to heaven one day. Isn't that a remarkable testimony of a man that literally has preached to more people all over the world than anyone else has ever preached to in history, that has been honored and reverenced and revered by heads of state and masses around the world, a national treasure, and yet a simple gospel of the love of God, Jesus' death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave, the atonement for sin, and how you can be born again. Billy Graham has had a one-string guitar that he's just played that one string since the 1940s and has touched nations with his one-string guitar of the love and the grace and the mercy of God and all that Jesus accomplished on the cross and mankind's need to come to him so that when they die, they'll know where they're going. They'll know where they're going. You can be saved and know of a certainty. Well, God used Billy Graham in a phenomenal way in Los Angeles, and that was the thing that really began to catapult his ministry. But when Billy Graham broke into that, something was released, and there were many, many others that God began to raise up across the land of evangelists, and great time of church growth, Methodist evangelists, great Methodist preaching. I remember as a little boy in the Methodist church, how that in our Methodist church every year we'd have a two-week revival and a Methodist evangelist would come and would start preaching on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, every night, take Saturday off, come back the next Sunday and go for another week, ending up with actually three Sundays of revival. We did that every year. The place would be packed. Balcony would be packed. And that kind of thing happened everywhere. There were what the Methodists used to call brush arbor meetings. And Baptists used to have what they called brush arbor meetings or camp meetings where they would just go and just have preaching and worship. And God was moving in a profound way. The gospel was being preached in churches up and down and across the land in those years following World War II. And people were being touched and people were being changed. As a result of that, the nation was changed. The moral fabric of the nation was changed because of the evangelism revival that began in the late 40s and went all the way through the 50s. The nation, the moral fabric of the nation was impacted. I was in a hotel room sometime in the last 12 months somewhere, I've forgotten where, and was getting ready to go to a meeting and turned on the television. And there was a rerun of the old CBS series, Gunsmoke. How many ever watched Gunsmoke? Marshall, Matt, Dillon, and Chester. I mean, one of the biggest hits CBS ever produced. 
It was on for years and years and years. And here's Gunsmoke. I haven't watched Gunsmoke in 40 years since I was a kid. And I just sat down to watch it. I would guess this would have been produced sometime maybe in the mid-60s. But the thing that astounded me was here is Marshal Matt Dillon, the representative of law and order in Dodge City, sitting in the Long Branch Saloon in the middle of the day, okay, with the town doctor, Doc Adams. They're drinking at noontime in a saloon, and Matt's girlfriend, who's the only name we ever heard that she had, was Miss Kitty. And all those girls that were bringing the drinks in the dance hall get up, they weren't dressed that way because they were on their way to Sunday school, if you understand what I'm saying. It was a bar. Those girls were bar girls. I mean, there was a set of stairs back in the back of the bar that went upstairs over the Long Branch Saloon. And I'll give you three guesses what the stairs were about. That didn't go to the attic where they kept the Christmas decorations. And so here's Sheriff Marshal Matt Dillon and the town doctor and the deputy and the leaders of the community in Miss Kitty's saloon at noontime having a drink together. I mean, what would they do that to your sheriff in your county if such a scene was being played out? But the thing that so impressed me with this is they were talking about the Bible. Somebody had some kind of event that had gone on. And here's Matt Dillon and Doc and Chester sitting there explaining to a man about what the good book says and how the good book teaches us that unless we forgive other people, we can't be forgiven ourselves. And the reason CBS put that kind of dialogue on there is everybody in America in that moment of time understood what that meant. They understood that the good book was the Bible, and they understood that Jesus had said, about the importance of forgiveness and how we can only be forgiven if we learn to forgive others. And I thought about that, the profound impact that the church and the gospel and the Bible had upon this nation, even in a television program that's got boozing and prostitution and violence and all this stuff that's going on, In the midst of it all, there was still a fear and a reverence and an honor for God. When the Russian astronaut Yuri Gagarin, I believe it was in 1961, was the first man to ever go into space, Yuri Gagarin came back and he said, well, I went into space and I didn't find God there. Everybody's always said there's God up there. And he said, I went up there in space, and I looked, and I looked, and I looked. I didn't see any evidence of God there, so therefore, there must certainly be no God. And yet, 40 years ago, Neil Armstrong, the Apollo mission to the moon, on that evening in June in 69, is reading from the book of Genesis about in the beginning, God created the earth and the heavens. He literally read Genesis chapter 1 while the whole world watched on television, the first television broadcast that we'd ever had of ourselves. And then when it was over, he ended with the words, 
God bless all of mankind. Having read from the Bible, that was the difference. Do you know what kind of a reaction that would create today? The ACLU would say, well, you know, what's this all about? Other religions would demand equal time. The feminist would get all upset that Neil Armstrong referred to God as a he. I mean, do you see how much we have changed in a relatively short period of time from a nation that once honored God and reverenced God and respected God to something that the night before I came up here two nights ago, I flipped on television. I don't even remember the show that was on right before the evening news. And it was on NBC, and one of the characters was saying that the whole idea of God is just a big joke. It's just a big joke. And that is what is given to us 24-7 now in our society, is we've gone so far in such a short period of time. When God launched the evangelism revival in America at the end of World War II, there was a reverence for God and a respect for God that permeated every aspect of society. Churches preached the gospel. Pastors preached the gospel. Churches had meetings, and their people attended them. There was a reverence and a fear and a respect and an honor for God and for men of God and women of God. And Christians were given a place of honor and respect because we stood for something. And it was very, very clear that evangelism, listen to me this morning, the very heart of God is always in evangelism. We want great revivals. We want great outpourings. We want great anointings. We want great signs and miracles and anointings. And no one wants those things more than yours truly. But the heart of God is always going to be found in getting people saved. And that's the reason that at the end of his life, presidents are going to Billy Graham's library dedication. He's still viewed as America's pastor. Is This is a man that had a simple message that literally resonated with the heart of God and he never varied from it. He never backed away from it. Of preaching the gospel of God loved the world so much he gave Jesus to die on the cross and shed his blood that people could be saved. And he walked it out. He didn't just preach it. He walked it out in integrity and holiness. And my brothers and sisters, for whatever else we do as a church and as Christians, we must never lose sight of the harvest. We must never cease to preach the gospel. We must never cease to teach people about Jesus and that He is the way, the truth, and the life, because God will honor that. God is not obligated to honor what Christians do and what churches do when it's separate and something different from what he does. It's just that simple. And God used Billy Graham to be the father of evangelism and brought a wave of evangelistic fervor to this nation and all over the world for that matter in a profound way. That evangelism revival ignited in other parts of the world as well, in Africa and in South America. Great, great revival came in South America in those days. As God poured out His Spirit evangelistically. The second wave of revival 
closely tied to the first came to be known as the healing revival or the voice of healing movement. And it was birthed in the late 40s as well. Some of the names associated with that revival are men like Kenneth Hagan, William Branham, Oral Roberts, A.A. Allen, Jack Coe, but there were hundreds and hundreds of others. And there came a great healing outpouring. And it was amazing that people were being healed. And I'm not talking about these kinds of healings where somebody had a headache, took two Tylenol, came to church, got prayed for, and felt better. I'm talking about remarkable, amazing, astounding, creative miracles. I've heard the testimonies of people that were there and saw it with their own eyes. I remember a man in one of my meetings years ago talked about being as a boy, going to a William Branham meeting. A woman came in with a blanket, and in the blanket was the dead body, just hardened body of a three-month-old baby girl that had died the night before in another state. And she and her husband had wrapped the baby in a blanket and had driven hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to Branham's meeting. And she rushed the stage. The ushers never saw her coming. She rushed right up on the platform where Branham was, weeping and crying. And William Branham took his hands and cradled that dead baby told everybody there just to begin to pray and laid hands on that baby. Just begin to say the name of Jesus, 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 Jesus. Somewhere between three and four minutes passed and suddenly the baby started to cry. And I've talked to people personally that have seen, that were there in those days of the 40s and 50s and saw amazing, astounding miracles. R.W. Schombach tells the story of one of the greatest miracles that he had ever seen was in the ministry of A.A. Allen. He used to travel with Allen, of a woman that had come from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Birmingham, Alabama, and had brought a little boy. She'd given birth to this little boy, and the doctors had told her, you know, he'll probably not live but just a few hours and die. There's just no way that he'll live beyond a few hours. He was so deficient. He was blind. He was deaf. His brain had never fully developed. His tongue just laid out the side of his mouth. You've heard this testimony. I mean, didn't have any joints in his legs and in his arms. And the baby didn't die. And he lived. And the doctors couldn't understand why he'd lived as long as he'd lived. He lived. How old was that baby? About three? About three years old. And the mother came to Birmingham, Alabama with this little three-year-old boy. R.W. Schombach said that, you know, he saw this mother and this baby. He said, I didn't have faith to believe. It was just greater than raising somebody from the dead. And he said, I was there. And he said, I saw it with my own eyes, how God touched that little boy and began to heal him. And the power of God went through that little boy's body and joints began to form, and his tongue popped into his mouth. So it was like a rubber band when God healed him. All of a sudden, his tongue just hanging out. All of a sudden, it was like, and his eyes opened, and he was able to hear. And how that, that little boy grew up perfectly normal in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And, you know, I don't know the rest of the story, but he was made totally normal and healed by the power of God. 
Those were the kinds of miracles that were happening, not only in these big ministries, but there were many others that were traveling in those days. I personally heard the story of out in California of a man that had known a particular healing evangelist from West Virginia that for many years he would not just accept meetings. He would pray and pray and pray and he would only go to the places that he felt that God wanted him to go. But every person would get healed. It, I mean, it didn't matter what was wrong with them. Every person would get healed. The man had just a phenomenal ministry, and people would come from everywhere. He told the story of this particular man, and he had come to this town, and the mayor's daughter had been born blind. And everybody in town was waiting for him to come because they knew every person got healed. The mayor's daughter was going to be healed, a little 12-year-old girl. They'd gone out and bought her a new dress so that the first time she saw herself after she got healed, she would see herself in a new dress, and everybody was, she was going to be healed. She was going to be healed. And this healing evangelist was getting ready to go to the meeting that night, and the Lord spoke to him. And he asked him a question, and it's been my experience when God asks a question, he's never looking for information. He already has his answer. He wants us to understand and he asked this healing evangelist a question. And the question was, is it me that's healing these people or is it you? And the healing evangelist replied, he said, Lord, it's both of us. Because it's you, but you've put a gift inside of me and an anointing inside of me. And he said, when I said that, he said, I knew something was terribly wrong. And he said, I tried to get over it. And he said, I, I just kept praying, praying, praying. The Lord, just give us a great meeting tonight. God touched the people. But he said, I knew I had done something terribly, terribly wrong. And he said, I went to that meeting that night. The place was totally packed out. The mayor's daughter was there in her new dress, ready to get healed. And he said, I did what I did in every other meeting. And they brought the mayor's daughter forward. And he prayed for her. And he prayed for her. And he prayed for her and prayed for, and nothing happened. And at that moment, he took his Bible and left the meeting, got in his car, drove about six hours back to where he came from. I mean, he just told the people, I've got to leave. And he left town because everybody had always been healed. He prayed and he prayed, he fasted, he prayed, he prayed and he fasted for days and days and days and days and days. And nothing happened. He was out of the ministry for several months. And finally, the Lord released him and said, begin again. But from that day on, only half the people in the meetings were ever healed. It was like the Lord said, if you can heal them, go ahead. If this is your anointing, go ahead and do it. I'll take half and you take the other half. What do you think? I'll heal my half. And then I'll let you heal the other half. We'll just go halves on the whole thing. And he grieved over that for the rest of his life. But there was a moment of time in the 40s and 50s that literally everybody was getting healed in some of these meetings. Or Roberts had just amazing miracles. Jack Coe, the same thing. I'm t wild things were happening because it did not seem to be 
anything that people were doing. It was just God flowing through people. And I told you that story about that healing evangelist that I won't identify from West Virginia to make the point that it was just all God doing it. It was God that was doing these miracles. Yes, we want anointings. Yes, we want gifts. But we must always understand our total and complete reliance and dependence upon the Holy Spirit because there's a teaching out there in the earth right now that we've all got it, we can all do it, let's just go do the stuff and we'll just go do our thing. And that healing evangelist in West Virginia, that was exactly the same thing that he was saying. Is God, it's both of us. It's you and me and the gift and the anointing. And the Lord said, all right, well, let's just see how it works. That's the reason, my brothers and sisters, we must walk in the reverence of God, in the fear of God, in the honor of God, and dependence upon God, and yieldedness to God with a message that is simple of the love of God. I run into people all the time. They appear more to me to be some sort of an action superhero streaking through the stratosphere at Mach 4 with their hair on fire on a mission from God. And it's like they can do the stuff And I'm here to tell you the only thing that does the stuff is the power and the presence and the anointing of God flowing through a person's life. And that was one of the reasons that the healing revival got so weird and squirrely and ultimately died. Kenneth Hagin would preach the Word of God in his meetings. Some of these other people wouldn't. There was very little emphasis on the Word of God in many quarters in that day. It was on the miracles. It was on the healing. And Kenneth Hagin used to tell people, when all of you guys are gone, I'll still be here. And it was Hagin and Oral Roberts that used to preach the Word in a greater degree. Hagin, more than Roberts, would preach the Word of God and stayed with the Word of God where everybody else just wanted to do the stuff, quote, unquote. And that was the reason so many of them crashed and burned. God had to take William Branham home prematurely. William Branham, the man that raised the baby from the dead, had the most incredible ministry. But Pastor Avis gave me an article that he has in his filing cabinet in his office that was written many years ago by a man that I greatly respect, have met, and used to be in the same fellowship that he was in, a man by the name of Ralph Mahoney. And Ralph Mahoney was in many of William Branham's meetings. And Ralph Mahoney, speaking of Branham, and he was not critical of Branham. He acknowledged William Branham to have been the greatest prophet that he'd ever been around. He believed Branham was as great a prophet as anything in the New Testament. And maybe as great a prophet as many of them in the old, who lived in the 40s and 50s, but died in a car wreck in 1962. And this was not a bashing Branham article at all. I mean, Ralph Mahoney identified Branham as an incredible man of God. He said, I'd never seen such an amazing prophetic gifting. But he said in his article that, speaking of Branham, that Branham had told, had spoken at a pastor's meeting. And William Branham had told pastors that the greatest challenge that he had was not to give in to the spirit of divination because his mother had been a full Cherokee Indian 
and she had come from a lineage of Cherokee shamans. And he said, God had warned him and warned him that I've given you this amazing prophetic gifting and anointing, but you must be very, very careful not to be deceived and not slip over the edge. Because church, the reality is, is the realms of God and the realms of the cult run very close to each other. And the only thing that keeps the two divided is the fear of God. The fear of God is the firewall that separates those two. And Branham had said, I have to constantly guard myself that I do not give in to the spirit of shaman and divination because I could have words of knowledge for people that were not words of knowledge given by the Holy Spirit. I can get it both ways. And Mahoney believes that what happened to Branham was the prophetic anointing began to wane, but because of the demands and pressures of people to come to the meeting, to see the prophet minister, to hear the words of God, that there was such a pressure on Branham to perform that when the anointing would not be there to perform to the expectations of the people, that Branham might have given way to the other, and with that came the deception. Because Branham did very little with the written Word of God. I actually had someone give to me a tract that Branham had written many years ago, and I just almost wanted to weep. Because any eight-year-old child that's ever been to Sunday school would have a greater theological understanding of God than what William Branham had. I mean, he did not believe in the Trinity. He believed that women were little more than cattle, that it was women's fault that sin had come into the world, blamed them with the fall. I mean, all these crazy teachings that he came up with that were doing damage to the body of Christ. That's the reason God took him home prematurely. Why? Because he opened himself up to deception and he did not stay with the Word. We must stay with the Word. It's not just healing. It's not just miracles and signs and wonders. Signs and wonders and miracles and healings must follow the written Word of God and holiness and the repentance of us turning from sin and reverence and respect because that's what brings the blessing of God in revival. That was the secret of Billy Graham's ministry. We can compare a William Branham to a Billy Graham or we can compare others to a Billy Graham and we understand why one wound up at the end of their life as he has and why others have just gone completely off the radar in heresy, immorality, all these bizarre things, and it was because of a few little simple things of staying with the gospel, humility, reverence and respect for God, obedience, and the written Word of God. That's why we have to be very, very concerned. The healing revival of the 40s and 50s could best be described as a Holy Spirit power revival, a Holy Spirit power revival. We saw the move of God continue in the 40s, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, of the latter rain movement, which was the presence of God. And God was moving in a phenomenal way through the latter rain movement. I encourage you to go and do some research on that. But it was the wonderful presence of God, and God was blessing. One of my favorite revivals of all took place in the late 40s, around 1948, 1949, 
in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland. And the man that God used in that revival was Duncan Campbell. Many of these folks were Presbyterians. And there were two elderly sisters, Peggy and Christine Smith. And Christine's body was riddled with arthritis and they couldn't get out of the house. And Peggy was blind. But these two elderly sisters loved God and they were intercessors. And it was to Peggy Smith, the blind sister, that God gave a vision of revival coming to the Hebrides. And they began to pray and pray and pray, and they invited some other people to come and shared the vision with them about how God wanted to send revival to the Hebrides Island and so forth. And people began to pray, and then God did it. It began with Duncan Campbell in a Presbyterian church. The accounts I've read is Campbell preached and dismissed the crowd, and everyone left. And when he left the church building that night, Everyone was still standing out in the churchyard. And when he came back in, suddenly people began to run back into the church. And the power of God hit the church, and people began to repent. And they just stayed in the flow of what God was doing in that church. Somewhere after midnight, somebody came to the church and said, Revival's broken out in a town not far from here. Bring the evangelist. And it's after midnight, and the pastor and some of the leaders take Duncan Campbell and it was decided that rather than drive by car, they would just walk through some open fields. There was a shortcut kind of across some pastures instead of driving way somewhere and going there and going around and coming somewhere else. And it would just take a little while to walk at night. They had lanterns and flashlights and they'd just walk over here a mile or so. And halfway over there, out in the middle of a farmer's pasture, in the middle of the night, are hundreds of people weeping under the presence of God and the power of God, crying out for mercy that He would come and save them and forgive them. There was a little prayer meeting going on in a barn of people praying for revival to come, and they came to a place of brokenness. They just couldn't imagine that God was going to do it, but they had prayed for five months every other night, all night prayer meetings. And they came out of the barn at five o'clock in the morning and couldn't understand why all the lights were on in all the houses of the town at five o'clock in the morning. Every house was illuminated with light at five o'clock in the morning. They didn't understand why. Why would all the houses be lit up? What they didn't understand is that the revival had come in the night. God was visiting the whole town and the people had gotten up out of bed and turned on the lights to pray. When the sun came up at 7 o'clock in the morning, all the churches began to fill with people. There were no meetings scheduled. By 8 o'clock that morning, every church in the city was filled with people praying. An atmospheric revival came to the Hebrides Islands. It was the Isle of Lewis, they call it. And it was just an open heaven. And I mean, the interesting thing about atmospheric revival is when they come, beloved, more people are getting saved outside church meetings than are getting saved in church meetings. It's like people are having encounters with God in their homes and their stores and their businesses and on the streets. And they come to the church to find out what to do about it. They don't come to church to get it. They come to the church looking for relief. 
Can you imagine a revival coming to America that America is rushing to the churches trying to find relief from the convicting power of the Spirit of the living God that's encountering them, that has brought a revelation to them that they are lost, they are dying, they're going to go to hell, and they need to find God somehow or another to have mercy on them and let them off the painful hook of the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that they're being afflicted with. That's what happens in real revival. And we've not seen revival like that in many, many generations in this nation. But that's what must come. They're not going to come to eat our donuts and drink our coffee and be entertained for an hour and 15 minutes. But they will come to church looking for relief from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that's impacting their lives, that bring about change. You see, that was the thing that so made Charles Finney's ministry different, is they did some research on Finney, and what they found out was is 80% of people that got saved in Charles Finney's meetings were still saved 25 years later. 80% of them had they not gone to heaven first. Why? Because they had had an encounter with God that convicted them of sin, and they understood that sin was bad. And sin was deadly. And sin had consequences. And they had a holy fear and a holy reverence for Almighty God that when they got saved, they were glad of it. You see, most of us in church today, we just kind of give God a a wink, you know. Just kind of give God a look and a wink as it relates to sin. Let me cover some others quickly. The Indonesian revival in 1965 where God visited Indonesia with a great outpouring of His Spirit. Miracles, signs, wonders, mass evangelism. The charismatic renewal of the 1960s and 70s. And some of us here today were a part of that. The charismatic renewal that God used, that touched the denominational churches, the Catholic Church, all over the world with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the restoration of the gifts. The Jesus Revolution of the 60s and 70s, of all the hippies getting saved out in California, being baptized in mass baptisms on the beaches that wound up on the front page of newspapers and Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine because of all the young people that were coming to Jesus out of the hippie culture of free love and drugs and and all the rebellion of that day. They found Jesus and it touched our nation and it touched the world. The Asbury College revival in February of 1970 was an example of atmospheric revival in a small Kentucky town. I went to seminary at Asbury Seminary. This was several years before I went there. But the effects of that revival were felt for many years. I mean, NBC Nightly News sent a news crew to Wilmore, Kentucky to cover the Asbury revival. Newspapers all over America wrote about it. It was an open heaven for about eight days. It was strange. One of the phenomenon I've been told of people that were there is strangers would come into Wilmore, Kentucky, a little town south of Lexington. They'd get out of their cars. They'd have a strange, strange sensation that they needed to take their shoes off, almost like Moses before the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Dennis Kinlaw president of Asbury College, all he could say was at 10 o'clock last Tuesday morning, Jesus walked into Hughes Auditorium. 
and he's been there ever since. God began to move phenomenally. The Argentine revival of the 1980s, Carlos Anacondia, where churches that had a dozen people in them went to thousands of people in a matter of weeks when God opened the windows of heaven over Argentina. I tell you these stories to build faith in your heart that when we talk about revival, we teach and preach about revival, we pray for revival, we're not asking God to do something that's never been done before. We're asking God, just do it again. God, do what you did in Argentina, in America. God, visit America like you did Asbury College. Come and move among the young people like you did in the Jesus Revolution. God, come and pour out your spirit like you did in the charismatic renewal of the 70s. God, do uh, again what you did in Indonesia. Do what you did before in the Hebrides Islands. God, come and do again like you did in the healing revival and the evangelism revival of the 40s and 50s. Do you see it? We're not asking God to do something unusual, bizarre, that we're not sure if it's the will of God to do it or not. We're just asking Him to come and visit us once more. As the historical records prove, he has been so gracious and kind to have done it in other times.